Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. Welcome. The scheduling of this book and panel is certainly timely given the rising crisis with Iran. We'll get to that subject eventually, but the point of the book, entitled Seven Pillars, and the discussion is to look more broadly and more deeply at the drivers of instability in the Middle East. From Yemen to Syria to Iraq, and now with Iran, the region more than ever seems in a permanent state of turmoil. It's become a land of endless wars. And tragically, despite decades of intense and often well-meaning American attention and the expenditure of billions of dollars, U.S. policy has more often than not been a failure. Maybe the caveat, more often than not, is too kind. It's been an absolute failure if one accepts that the basic aim was to foster stability and a better life for the people of the region. Of course, the ones ultimately responsible for a country's success or failure are the people who live there. But the catastrophe of today's Middle East raises a lot of questions about whether the United States should continue to be engaged in the region, and if so, how. In this regard, the editors of Seven Pillars, Michael Rubin and Brian Katulis, and their co-contributors have given us a gift. They identify seven factors that affect stability or not and examine what they mean and the role they play. The pillars as they identify them are legitimacy, Islam, Arab ideology, the militaries, education, economy, and governance. I personally found many of the authors' perspectives to be unique and a useful basis to beginning looking at old problems in new ways whether it can serve as the basis for a new bipartisan approach in the current poisonous political environment here is anyone's guess, but at least the authors are trying to provide some fact-based reality and analysis to encourage debate. So with us today is Michael Rubin, who's a resident scholar here at AEI. He's a veteran of the Bush administration's Iran and Iraq team and has a Ph.D. in Iranian history. He contributed the chapter on legitimacy in the region. Next is Brian Katulis, who's a Clinton administration veteran, now at the Center for American Progress, with extensive experience in the Arab world. Prior to joining CAP, he lived in Egypt and Palestine, where he worked on governance issues for the National Democratic Institute. He contributed the chapter on governance. And then we have Kadir Yildirim, who's a fellow for the Middle East at the Baker Institute at Rice University. He researches both pluralism in the Middle East and the interplay between religious authorities and foreign policy. He contributed the chapter on Islam. I'm going to start with Michael and ask you, you know, what's special about this book? What did you think was lacking in the scholarship or the analysis that required this kind of approach? Well, if we look at the last half century of American interaction in the Middle East, by any metric, like you said in your introduction, the U.S. hasn't been successful, and it's not a Democrat or Republican thing. What we wanted to do was, number one, get away from analysis based on the U.S. political calendar. That's too easy, and it doesn't work. But more broadly, do a fundamental rethink of some of the issues and drivers in the region. 
in terms of legitimacy, for example, there's common core assumptions in the United States that it's all about good governance. That's what builds legitimacy. But when we're in Iraq, for example, people are willing to forgo, in some cases, good governance just so that they can have a Kurdish nationalist flag or a Shiite prayer flag over a certain building. And we also wanted to identify and look at the impact of things we hardly ever talk about in the region. Disruptive technology. How's that going to change things? How is foreign aid impact if legitimacy isn't good governance, then is foreign aid geared to the right thing? And then another in conclusion, just one of the broad issues that was most surprising to me personally when Brian and I traveled across the region was that many people, if we ask the question, what represents the most legitimate government in the Middle East, people tended to say something like Lebanon. And yet Lebanon is often thought about in the United States and frankly in many parts of the Middle East as an abject disaster. And so we were trying to grapple around some of these issues from a much more academic and less political or partisan approach. All right, so what is legitimacy? And why is Lebanon seen as more legitimate than other places? Well, first of all, we need to abandon this notion that one one size fits all. And that's not easy for American policymakers to do. What was clear, however, is that people were increasingly finding themselves disenfranchised. This isn't just an issue of the Arab Spring. It's not just an issue of the anti-Iranian protests, but there just seems to be a failure of the traditional isms in the Middle East, which is why uh, Thanasi Kambanis wrote his his chapter, Reimagining or or Reconsidering uh, All the Ideologies at Play, because, take the example of Iraq, 40% of Iraqis were born after the 2003 war. More than 60% of Iraqis were born after the 1991 war, which means no one has a functional memory of what life was like under Saddam Hussein among the broad swath of the youth. Therefore, they're no longer willing to accept, well, we might have our problems from, from some of the Islamist groups, for example, but at least we're not Saddam Hussein. People are looking at this generation which seceded Saddam Hussein and seceded many of these other ideologues and dictators in the region and saying, these guys don't represent us. We have in the United States, as much as we complain about politics, usually a 90 to 95% incumbency rate in Congress. In places like Iraq, it's around 12 to 16%. I mean, the fact of the matter is people are adrift, and that makes it a very dangerous moment. Brian, you wrote about governance. Yeah. The form of governance that has evolved or been imposed on Iraq since Saddam was overthrown, right. is it working? Do the Iraqis have to come up with something else? Does the United States have to help Iraq come up with something else? Great question, and I'll answer that in a second. I first want to highlight the subtitle of the book is What Really Causes Instability in the Middle East? And my simple answer after spending nearly two years with Michael Rubin on this project is it's Michael Rubin and neocons (laughs) who are warmongering. It's a joke. Um, (laughs) To your question on Iraq, quite obviously, before this latest episode, if you see what's, what's happened in the last week and then what was happening just a few months before that, young people in the streets of Baghdad and in major cities in Iraq questioning the very old order, the political order that's in Iraq, protesting corruption, poor services, and a, and a bunch of things that, quite frankly, when you go around the region like, like we do and we did together and quite regularly are the sorts of things that impact every country in the Middle East, this sort of crushing demographic, social, economic pressures. 
And inside of Iraq, to answer your question, quite clearly, despite multiple elections, the current system of, of governance and government is not helping the people. And one of the points of this book, and it's not a new point, because if you go back to the Arab UN human development reports of 16, 17 years ago, is that those structural factors that contribute to stability are quite weak. And in those 15, 16, 17 years since, they've, they've gotten weaker. And I think in a place like Iraq, quite clearly, and this is where I joked about Michael, but we do have our differences. He was in favor of the Iraq war. I wasn't. He was against the Iran nuclear deal. I was. But the one thing that we agree upon is to dig deeper and why we wanted to do this book and, and in the chapter on governance. Uh, I talk a bit about Iraq, but not about its national governance. I talk about this experiment in governance that actually emerged under the Islamic State. Uh, I spent a couple of pages on it. And it shows you that responsive governance and discontent uh, with uh, a government that's not responding plants the seeds for the sorts of instability that we saw happen in Iraq uh, under the previous prime minister that groups like the Islamic State exploited. And I think we should have learned by now, many years after the Iraq war, that the United States can't fix these factors. But it's important to factor these fundamental building blocks for stability in our analysis. As we see today, the hot takes on what we're going to do next and the cycle of escalation, which I think is quite dangerous. ISIS was a new phenomenon. And there has been uh, failures, a failure of, go- of governance, failure of leaders in the Middle East for a long time. Right. So why at this moment did a group like ISIS have an opportunity to to rise and have such a profound impact? Well, I think it's multiplicity factors, and some of it tied to this generational transition, where you just simply have a youth bubble that is uh, crushing. And if the governments in places like Iraq aren't responding to it, people will rise up in in various different forms. The ISIS model, which again was short-lived and I don't think had much legitimacy in the long run, was created, though, in response to an ineffective government. And there are more tools now in a place like Iraq under Saddam Hussein, it was a dictatorship. There wasn't as much open space for people to produce change. Mm -hmm. And I think the theory that was behind the Iraq war that in 2003, and we don't want to go back and debate that, but the theory behind it was flawed in that simply if we just topple regimes and eliminate or decapitate the top, um, then somehow freedom will spread. And we know that 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 didn't happen. And I think why it accelerated in the Islamic State in particular is that you had uh, multiple fights going on inside of Iraq, uh, civil war first, and then a system of governance that simply wasn't responding. And that's, that's the main point, is that those conditions are still there. Iraqis are still looking at their national government as a caretaker government. So, uh, Carol, I, I would challenge the notion that the Islamic State was all that new, because if we go back in history, there's any number of millennial movements, whether it was the seizure of the Grand Mosque in 1979, or you want to go back a century before that to the Mahdi in Sudan. What I do want to draw out from what Brian was talking about, and there's any numbers of issues on governance beyond simply this monarchy versus republic and so forth, but what does this mean for the nature of American diplomacy if we are still in many ways, limiting ourselves to interactions with representatives of governments who are under siege, whether those governments know it or not. Are we missing the broader picture, both in terms of diplomacy and intelligence, when it comes to the Middle East? How much time do diplomats spend outside the walls of embassies talking and just interacting on the local market as opposed to simply interacting with government? And 
I, I mean, we don't want to bring in U.S. policy too much, but one of the aftermaths of Benghazi, putting the, the root of that crisis aside, mm-hmm. is just the lockdown upon which American diplomats find themselves. Right. And when you go to Beirut, and both Brian and I went to Beirut together, the U.S. Embassy in Beirut is basically living under the same security parameters that they did during the Civil War. Yeah, yeah and I think that's an important point. It's a tactical point. I think there's a strategic point, which I, I think for U.S. policy in the Middle East, we're quite likely at the end of a 40-year period that began um, with the, the events in 1979, the Islamic Revolution in Iran, Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, um, and a number of things that led to the U.S. having its engagement primarily be focused on what our military does. And look at where we are today and discussing and worrying about what's the next move and what will our military do. And to me, this point that Michael makes, which is tactical but it's important, is our diplomats, and that diplomatic service has been decimated in the last couple of years, they are our eyes and ears in understanding societal trends, and we're flying a little bit more blind. More broadly, and the, the, the last point is that I think it, it opens up questions of whether the United States should actually be spending a lot of aid money and other things in countries that simply lack the capacity to do this, that maybe there's a strategy for thinking more modestly about our engagements, thinking about those beacons or outposts where there's relative progress in places like Tunisia, for instance. So maybe a dollar spent in Tunisia and time spent in Tunisia may ultimately be a lot better than in other parts of the Middle East. But we don't even have that discussion these days because we're reacting to sort of mostly military moves and military-centric moves and and not thinking about how do we diversify the portfolio. I do want to follow up on that, but I want to bring Kadir into the conversation. Is religion more important in the Middle East today than it was before? It is. It is very much so, but we need to go. I think that one of the fundamental misconceptions about Middle East in terms of religion um, politics interplay is that we tend to assume that this has been the case all the time. You know? But if you go back 40, 50 years ago, we, what we will see is you know, the dominance of secular governments, secular ideologies, and how Islamist parties and groups, you know, they were existent, many of them, but they were much smaller, much less influential in terms of policymaking, in terms of being able to affect other groups in the society, or how governments were acting in terms of foreign policy or domestic policy. But over the course of the last 40, 50 years, things have changed dramatically. I think, you know, the Iranian revolution was, Islamic revolution was uh, a big turning point. But also, more importantly, something that Brian has mentioned, secular ideologies have failed throughout the Middle East, in the, throughout the um, 1960s and 70s and early 80s. They and failed as leaders, you mean, as, and their as, ideas as, failed. In terms of policy, you know, the, the fundamental issues were political and economic, and they failed to deliver on their promises, on what the, what people were expecting, you know, um, and this is this this is what precipitated the rise, um, the rising, uh, I think, significance of these um, religious groups, Islamists, or you know, later on, um, Salafist fundamentalist groups, and later on, uh, more you know, um, violent extremist groups um, throughout the region, and. The, the, the key problem here, their rise was not just in terms of their own popularity, you know, uh, within their borders. Say, Muslim Brotherhood, you know, in 2011, 12, 30, 40 percent, you know, uh, of the vote. But more importantly, I think they were able to dictate the parameters of the discussion in terms of the policy issues that were ongoing. You know, their rise influenced secular groups, non-religious groups, political groups, so much so that um, they felt the need to bring in religion 
to their own discussions, to their own sort of policy sort of proposals, so to speak. One good example, I think, is uh, what's happening in Turkey today. Erdogan and AKP have come to power in 2002. And he's been, I mean, he's a massive politician, but he's been so successful Mm -hmm. in terms of changing the political system in Turkey in such a way that the secular parties are unable to determine the agenda, political agenda. They are unable to discuss issues, you know, in a way outside of the parameters set by Erdogan himself. And one problem here is that, you know, if we think about this in terms of religious competition, from the framework of religious competition, that means, you know, you or or political actors, both religious and non-religious, will try to cater to the demand, you know, the religious demand, because people will want more of that, seeing that it carries, you know, currency uh, in political debates. But Erdogan has not been uh, uniformly successful. I mean, he was successful in growing the economy, certainly in the early years, Mm -hmm. but he's run into trouble, more trouble now, uh, and he's run into political pushback. Do you see him using Islam and his religious beliefs more as a political tool to advance, you know, advance his political career? Or do you think that this is just so indigenous to the people of Turkey that every politician going forward is going to have to encompass religious belief more into their way of... Right. I mean, I can't speak to his personal beliefs as beyond, you know... uh my sort of focus as a political scientist. Uh, What I can tell you is that um, religion is an important um, element of his political discourse. And when we look at over time, it changes in terms of the intensity that he emphasizes religion in his political discourse. So if you look at the period until 2011, 12, 13, from 2001 when the party was first established, religion did not play as significant a role. But once his political... Um, prospects were, I think, receding as a result of the corruption scandal first, and then later on, you know, um, other issues that he's come up um, losing, you know, um, in elections to some degree, losing his popularity. Um, Then he started actually using uh, more religion, partly because he wanted to bring in some of the more conservative elements, especially from among the Kurdish uh, voters in Turkey and some of the nationalist votes. So what we see is, you know, depending on the time, his use of religious discourse, you know, um, waxes and wanes. And this is really important. And this is true not just for Erdogan, but also other politicians in the region. Going back to, you know, to, to an issue that we men- yeah, Ryan mentioned about Tunisia, I fully agree. I mean, a dollar spent in Tunisia is going to uh, go much further, you know, compared to other parts of the world in mm-hmm. terms of U.S. Mm-hmm. foreign policy um, because it's a newly, you know, um, democratizing context. And... What's underlying, you know, overall support for a lot of these um, religious Islamist groups, Islamist political groups, is economic and political issues. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, once those issues are addressed, uh, first and foremost, I think, uh, we're most likely going to see a decrease in their support levels. But I think that's really the key. You use this phrase repeatedly, and I think it's pretty smart, using the religion. And you talked about it mostly in the domestic context of Turkey, which I think is spot on, is to understand that people... Uh, leaders uh, use religion and Islam in their own way. And the point I wanted to make, uh, two points. One, this is about power. We, we shouldn't, uh, it's not necessarily about faith or the, the, the right interpretation of religion if there is such a thing, but it's about power. And then secondly, in addition to the domestic use of religion, 
What I see in the Middle East right now is this um, multifaceted, multidimensional competition for power and influence. And the use of Islam by Turkey, say, versus Saudi Arabia, which has its own sort of definition and how it tries and it uses Islam as you know, the birthplace of it. And then the Qataris. Uh, uh, but, but my main point is the first point, is that this is about power, <laughs> not about some sort of ancient hatreds and some sort of essentialist interpretation of religion. It's about leaders trying to stay in power by appealing to sort of different themes and memes, and then also trying to compete with what they see as their adversaries or their competitors in the region through the use of... And it's an inter, that's the most underanalyzed and, I think, interesting mm-hmm. aspect of it because it spills over into media fights and mm-hmm. into all sorts of things. And, and it's something that, frankly, the book doesn't cover itself, but it's, it's part of the thing if America wants a better foreign policy and approach, you need to understand that this is, in addition to sort of military moves and the use of terrorism and other things, a key part of the struggle and competition for power. One of the themes, and I want to actually ask this to Kadir uh, of the book, is just how rapidly things are changing. And so if we look 40 years in the future and you have a complete new set of the majority of each population hasn't even been born yet, is religion, is the major influence for religion going to be the mosque or is it going to be social media? And is it going to be legitimate theological rulers or our leaders or is it going to be populist leaders? And if so, how are um, traditional Muslim scholars looking at this rise of populism and do you really think that the way in which people consume religion is going to rapidly change, putting aside whether the United States can even keep up with that? Right. I mean, great question. So some of my research actually directly is trying to address this question. Um, so um, a couple of years ago, we started a project uh, funded by Luce Foundation trying to look into how religious authority is sort of um, distributed across the Middle East uh, among um, religious leaders, primarily uh, Muslim leaders. And what we found is that um, there, there were a couple of major findings. One of them is um, Islamist political groups or Salafi groups, mm-hmm. political Islamist um, actors actually have great popularity. You know, they, mm-hmm. people do look up to them as religious figures, r- religious leaders. And this is something really important that's been, that's been rising, that's been changing um, a lot. Uh, in terms of social media or mass, I think that's, that's, that's a change that was precipitated at the turn of the um, 20th century, you know, more than a century ago. Um, Islam is a little bit different. Um, it has a sort of a free market of religion, very mm-hmm. much like uh, Protestantism uh, in Christianity. It doesn't have a central authority. It doesn't have a hierarchy. So what this means is, you know, um, everyone can be a religious leader as long as people, you know, willingly um, support um, or follow these people. The ulama, the group of collective class of Islamic scholars, were big for almost a millennium between uh, end of 19th, uh, end of 9th um, into 10th century, up until the turn of the 20th century in Islam. So they were the class as religious authority. They were the preeminent um, sort of religious authority. But once they started waning, once they started uh, dying, um, so to speak, there was a big void in terms of who was the preeminent religious authority, right? So this is when we see the rise of political Islamists and Salafists um, early on. Uh, in the Muslim world, and this is um, this is a process that's gonna um, that's evolving uh, with the rise of social media more. So I don't know what's going to happen in 40 years, but definitely 
not the mosques, I don't think. Um, things are changing fast and quick. Uh, unless there emerges some form of a central hierarchical authority, um, things will be pretty distributed. Is Islam a force for stability or not? It depends on what we mean by stability. You know, mm-hmm. if you look at Turkey, it is a force for stability. I mean, it's an authoritarian way, but mm-hmm. it's a force for um, stability. If you look at some other, you know, context, you know, um, let's say early 2000s or 1990s in Turkey, again, it would be a force for instability because uh, it was, you know, stirring up the opposition. It was pushing them uh, into trying to get more, you know, political space in the parliamentary representation or change policies. So it, it totally depends on the context. I, think, I don't think Islam by itself is different um, than many other religions. It depends on the political context. It depends on the actors. It depends on the overall sort of circumstances in terms of what kind of role it fills in, in, in these countries. So it depends on the context. In, in Iraq, for example, or in Syria, it can be force for instability. But in, say, Tunisia, at this point in time, it can be a force for stability because of Ennahdas, uh, at least seeming commitment for um, democracy, by the, in the words of um, Rashid Ghanoushi, uh, in terms of Muslim democracy, for example. I actually think this is one of the major issues that we're witnessing now inside Iraq, although it's not being framed that way in the media, in that when we look at Grand Ayatollah Ali Sistani, who is the margin, the most prominent um, Shiite religious figure, he is apparently extremely cognizant of what the popular opinion is. And instead of simply leading it, he has to worry about following it. Because if he goes too far out in any of his Friday sermons and pronouncements, he risks being exposed as the emperor wears no clothes if the young people choose not to follow him. And therefore, we see a caution that really hasn't been there, if I will, since he lived under Saddam Hussein. So that's exactly religious competition. Yeah, you know, yeah. These mm-hmm. religious leaders are not blind to what's going on around them. Mm-hmm. They know what's going on. They follow them. And they adjust their discourses, whether these are traditional religious authorities yeah. or, you know, Islamists, um, or more politically oriented religious figures. They know what's going on and they will cater to those needs because, you know, ultimately what Islam does, what religion does for them is, I mean, they may be faithful believers individually, but Islam, you know, religion is a tool. It's, it's a political resource that, yeah. that you want to make use of and you want to make sure it helps you in, your, in terms of your power, you know, struggle. I think this is really the key point. From time to time, there's talk about reforming Islam. Does that have any value? What does it's, it even it's, mean? I, it's happening. I mean, what I don't understand, it's, it's, it's an organic process that I see as happening. And my own view is when you say the West, uh, I'm taking that as mostly governments and yeah. things like this. And I don't think necessarily we need to play a role in that. I, you know, when uh, I look back on, uh, certainly right now, we have a, a, a president who, when he ran as can, candidate, he said, I think Islam hates us. But, um, he, and he used sort of a, a, an interpretation of Islam, which I think is quite dangerous, what I, catering to, I think, certain political constituencies here. Deeply unhelpful. But I also, and I'm not making a comparison or a parallel between the two, I think when the U.S. did things like appoint special envoys to the Organization of Islamic Conference, I thought it was anywhere from irrelevant to maybe slightly unhelpful because I don't think it should be U.S. policy 
to sort of encourage some sort of reform of Islam. It's a religion. It's going to sort of have strands that are more extremist and more reformist, and it's organic, and it's playing out. And my friends, I, I'm not a Muslim, but, but my friends who live here in America or in Europe, there are different sort of ideas about their own faith and religion, and I, I, I would stay away from sort of that as a, as a use of engagement. When President Obama spoke in Cairo, there was sort of a, an idea of Muslim engagement, that a lot of my friends in the Arab world found a little bit offensive, especially those friends who were, say, Christian or <laughs> were not uh, Muslims of uh, tradition but not of faith, you know, and mm -hmm. wanted to be engaged as Egyptians or, or something else. Let, let me approach this a slightly different way, not surprisingly, <laughs> um, for my dewy-eyed liberal friend. Um, I, I think one of the issues where American policy gets caught in a trap is due to our own navel-gazing, I, one of the most interesting experiments which is occurring in the region is in Morocco. When it comes to the Morshadat program in which women are educated to be um, community prayer leaders alongside men. And Morocco, of course, has a theological and intellectual history that goes back well over a millennium. Except when you talk to American officials about what Morocco is doing and the Moroccan model, oftentimes what you hear is that, well, Morocco is peripheral. Morocco is irrelevant to the broader Islamic world, but intellectually and theologically, what's happened in Morocco traditionally in the Maliki school is much more significant than what's happened in Saudi Arabia. Uh, Saudi Arabia, of course, had the advantage of oil, which is why a much more minority interpretation spread. But we seem to be doing Saudi Arabia's work for them when we are so dismissive of other trends because we see from our vantage point them as peripheral. And so sometimes I would actually argue, and it looks like Kadir may disagree with me a little mm -hmm. bit, but um, our own perspective from Washington can actually get in the way. I, I agree with Brian that there has to be a limit to what we do in terms of the sort of religious debate, although we can't ignore it completely. But on the other hand, we, the, our first rule should be first do no harm. Would you disagree with me from your... Not necessarily disagree with you, okay. but um, I have a little bit of a different take, I think. So I don't disagree so with I'm, you, but I disagree with uh, you. Yeah, <laughs> uh, so I'm a Muslim myself, and I do think that Islam is in great need of reform. I don't think there is any denying to that. The Muslim world has a great problem in terms of underdevelopment at this point in time with violence. I'm not saying religion causes this violence, but there is... A pervasive, you know, case of violence throughout the Muslim world. You know, if you look at the Muslim world today, I, I can't remember the figures, but eight or nine Muslims that are being killed today are being killed by other Muslims, and that I think is is, an, is a very important statistic. We have pervasive underdevelopment, uh, undereducation in the Muslim world. A lot of issues and problems, and you know, one great book that addresses these issues by Ahmed Kuru recently published by Cambridge University Press, Islam, Authoritarianism, and Underdevelopment. Highly important book, I think, that looks into these issues very critically. But the point is, there is a great need for reform. And religion, whether we like it or not, you know, is being used or justified or, or is used to justify ongoing trends, issues, and problems in the Middle East. A great problem of patriarchy, for example. A great pro uh, problem of gender inequality. I mean, in Tunisia recently, just last year, there was debate about introducing legislation for equal inheritance. And the most progressive of um, Islamist parties and NATA opposed this legislation. And 
what are you going to do with it? I mean, this is, this is, I think, really important issue. So I do think there is a great need for reform in Islam because I think Islam, or Muslims um, rather, are still trying to, in my opinion, trying to, um, are struggling trying to come to terms with modernity. Uh, mm-hmm. And this is a big issue, I think. This is a very deep-seated issue that needs to be addressed. But with the current state of affairs, it's very difficult to come to terms with that. Part of the problem, something I try to emphasize about how Islamists and Salafists and fundamentalists have been so influential, they've been able to change the mindset not only of you know, those who are conservative, but also on the secular side. A lot of these issues, you know, if you look at LGBT issues, for example, mm-hmm. right? A century ago, I think, the Muslim world was much more, you know, progressive on this particular issue. On many other issues, you know, ethnic, religious diversity, I will argue that the Muslim world was much more progressive a century or two centuries ago. And this is, I think, uh, the, really the crux of the issue. This is the, when I said, you know, Islamists are so important, not so much because they have 30 or 40 percent support, popular support, but, but because they were able to shape reshape the mindset of a lot of people in their society. You mentioned LGBT, and it's a story from one of our trips and yeah. research, I think, uh, and he can correct me if I'm wrong. We, we went out and met with officials and talked to people, but we went to universities, and I remember we were in Morocco. Michael talked about... Muhammad the Fifth University. Muhammad the Fifth mm-hmm. University. And we asked to do a town hall with students, university students, and it was one of these give and take. And we, we said, look, we're, we're here from America, uh, and you might find this alarming or interesting that a lot of people are puzzled about America today. So the, the students were asking us what's going on and what's happening here. But then we asked them this one question, what's different about your generation from, um, your, parents from your parents' generation? And one woman who had a head covering raised her hand. And she said, well, some of us are, are LGBT and lesbian, and we talk about it openly. And then they debated for at least 10 or 15 minutes. Whether they could bring someone home to their their parents, for example, yeah. who and, is LGBT. And you pointed out um, yeah. that in other countries like Iraq, yeah. it's not necessarily the case. It's so taboo. So it's just, again, we It often... almost seems like that younger generation is starting to shift back from... The, the question is whether the generations we've had over the last 40 or 50 years, which you're identifying, Kadir, are the outlier or the signifier of a continuing trend. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not just about, you know, at the individual level, but at the public policy level... I think there was much more, you know, tolerance to uh, about many of these issues than mm-hmm. it is right now, yeah, right? Fair I mean, in how many Muslim majority countries do, is there, you know, death penalty for, or uh, or yeah, other yeah. kinds of penalty for, and, and, and apostasy and things I mean, like this? Yeah, yeah, or apostasy, or I mean, yeah, yeah. these are, I think, important issues. You know, can you, cons- uh, you know, build a mosque in Saudi Arabia? Yeah, yeah. why not? I mean, I understand sure, maybe sure. if they. Ex- want to exclude Medina or Mecca because of you know religious reasons yeah. or whatever, but what about the rest of the country? Officially, you cannot you know in Saudi Arabia, and I think this is a big problem. So, does this change have to come organically? You say reform is mm-hmm. needed. How does this reform come about? It's a taboo subject right now. It's very difficult to introduce this subject. I mean, in several countries, those people, individuals, you know, whether they were scholars or just prominent figures who wanted to introduce debate and discussion about Islamic reform mm-hmm. have essentially castigated. Some of them were penalized in, for other reasons, but you know, you know that it was a pushback from government officials or others in terms of their official stance or being critical of Islam, so to speak. This is what they understand from introducing debates about Islamic reform. I think a fundamental issue is, again, going back to socioeconomic development. You know, unless 
you have good education systems where you are able to introduce critical thinking, analytical mm -hmm. thinking, mm -hmm. you improve equality in the country, you improve socioeconomic or economic development, uh, well-being of a lot of these people in these countries. I think it's very difficult. Well, I mean, we're in a think tank, so we're going to be policy prescriptive for a second. Back during the Bush administration, I think around 2002, there's a case of Saadadine Ibrahim, the Egyptian-American mm -hmm. sociologist, who was imprisoned in part for what he was talking about in terms of reform. And the Bush administration held up something like $120 million worth of aid. I think if we go further back during the Reagan administration and we look at the issue of abrogation in Islam, and there was an, a Sudanese scholar, he talked about how reform should include the need for reverse abrogation, putting the early verses of the Quran uh, ahead of some of the later verses. And he was, of course, executed mm -hmm. by the Nimeri regime. The, the point of this is, while the United States, we have separation of church and state, does that mean that, A, we can ignore religion in other countries, and can we use the leverage of our purse, for example, in order to, in order to create some sort of space so that the people who are being most bold um, on the course of reform don't end up in prison or worse? Yeah, this is an important point. And okay. Just three quick ones for, for, for U.S. policy. Yeah. Number one, listening and understanding. What we were saying before, getting diplomats outside of the wire. The fact, the tragedy that Ambassador Chris Stevens, who was killed in Benghazi, he was adept at doing this mm -hmm. and was a, as powerful, I think, as some elements in our military. To understand what are the social dynamics, uh, I think, is important. Number two, uh, keeping this issue of democracy, governance, and freedom on the U.S. policy agenda, I think, is really important. And obviously, it's been downgraded under President Trump. I would submit that that's a pre-existing condition, that that actually started that process of not having as much sort of focus in terms of what our diplomats do. It started under the Obama administration for a number of reasons, because we wanted to pull back, because we define, and there's this distorted debate about democracy, equating it with an interference of the sort that Russia did in our own economy, and it's, it's totally mis in our own government and things like this. But you then, think democracy is something the United States should still... Promote? I actually think that the, what, what Michael was saying about Saadadine Ibrahim, when somebody's imprisoned, whether it's in Saudi Arabia or other Raif partners, Raif Badawi, right. we, we need to raise our voice and mm -hmm. make it part of the conversation and be serious about it. The strategic goal would be to create a safe space. Space for the reform to happen. Space. And that's the main point is if you don't, and this is why I'm skeptical of the top-down uh, attempts at reform in places like Saudi Arabia, because if you do that while maintaining your position as an absolute monarchy and right. don't give organic space for people to debate mm -hmm. religion or other issues, it's likely to fail. And then the third point, and it's a simple one, and it relates to what you said at the top, Carol, is uh, don't do harm. Wars actually are one of the worst things and, and flawed wars and unnecessary wars that actually enhance the hardliners and hardline interpretations mm -hmm. of religion uh, so, you know, sort of extremists there feed off of this. And this is where I think we have to have a new style of engagement in the Middle East that, as I was saying earlier, tries to learn the lessons from the last 40 years and especially the last 15 years or so and then talk about what's sort of the right level of engagement. And it's mostly in this diplomatic, political, social space mm -hmm. and understanding what's happening. I, I just want to clarify one thing that Brian said uh, or add to it. I'm not, I'm not contradicting <laughs> you. Don't worry. I'll do that later. Um, but when it comes to reform, Oftentimes when we talk about reform and when the Middle East thinks about reform, it's apples and oranges. Take, for example, Saudi Arabia. What is a reformed absolute monarchy? A reformed absolute monarchy is a reformed absolute monarchy. It's not a democracy. And so sometimes it seems that our conversations in Congress across the political spectrum 
uh, and in USAID and so forth with regard to what is reform versus what is understood by people in the region are two different things. And when the clash occurs between those two different definitions, it can actually make things a lot worse. Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week.